morning, everyone. Welcome to the living world with my second episode this week. Finally, I'm very excited to be talking this week with you about some new research in biology. I've actually kind of missed the show a little bit. It's it's pretty fun, even though I'm had I've had quite some uh, staggering technical issues right now, but that's okay. Uh, anyways, the school that I have chose for this week to talk to you guys about is Imperial College London. Uh, I'm kind of just picking places around the globe and just going with it, I guess, trying to find the ones that have the most interesting biology research and also, you know, broadening horizons and everything. And I have only, I've only really been to London, I was in London once when I came over here to start school. And I was only there for six hours, so I never really saw uh, the school ICL really at all. So if any of you have ever been there, please let me know what it's like, because I'm very curious to, to hear and maybe even see the school. Because uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much almost all these schools that I'm gonna be talking to you about on the show are places I've never been. But I'd always love to know what they're like if any of you have ever been there at all. Uh, anyways, I've got three more uh, topics that I'm going to talk with you guys about today in uh, biology research. And uh, yeah, so just a little of a precursor for my first uh, article that I'm going to talk about. It's about pesticides and their effect on bee growth and development. And yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, pesticides and bees, woohoo. Uh, so I'm just going to go into my uh, baseline section where I give a little background on the article before I talk about the study. So bees, little tiny buddies and they fly around and they're they're good for the for the world uh whereas they're they're the good ones they're not they're not murder her hornets they're not the wasps and the other really freaky insects that fly around and want to sting you they're they're good they make honey and they pollinate flowers and they make honey I really like honey. <laughs> I've discovered that it's really good on uh, porridge. Even though the porridge that they serve in the dining halls here isn't the best, it's it's really good with honey and bananas. If you have never tried honey and banana porridge, it is amazing and it's really, really good. And also, you can also put blueberries on it too. That, that makes it really good. Anyways, uh, back to bees. So bees along with being the best makers and only makers of honey in nature, uh, have a variety of different roles. And they live in a giant structure called a hive. And sure, you all have probably seen or heard of a beehive, at least by now. Uh, I, I think we actually had, it was, it was either a wasp or a wasp nest or a beehive up in the garage at one of my houses that I lived in, in Virginia when I was a kid. And it always freaked me out that they were all just like swarming around in their little hive. And the hive was like the size of like my 
my head and I was like, oh my god, it was, it was so scary. But no, bee, bee, beehives are good. They, they have honey in them, actually. So yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, bees, they have a bunch of different roles. And their roles are determined by their uh, specific genes and hormones. Now, you've got both male and female bees, but male bees make up about 10% of the total population of the hive. This is because their only role in life in the structure and running of a beehive and colony is that they live to mate with the queen bee. And male bees are also known as drone bees. <laughs> More of a call it into a terms of their actual role. <laughs> it's just mating with the queen bee. That That's funny. And the queen bee is the only bee and the one bee in the whole colony who lays eggs for new bees. So her role in the hive is to make more smaller bees. And uh, the queen bee actually mates with up to about 20 different male bees. And she, and the reason she does this is to promote the genetic diversity of the hive. And the queen bee has a special organ in her body called a spermathica. And this stores the uh, sperm from the male bees. And so you can imagine if she has the sperm from 20 different bees, that's a lot. And yes, sorry about it being a little awkward, but it's a lot. It, it really is. And the queen, she stores all of the sperm and she uses it throughout her life to lay, to uh, actually, no, to fertilize the eggs that she lays. So she holds onto this for her whole life and uses it for her whole life. And the lifespan actually of the queen bee is about two to five years and she can lay up to 1,500 eggs a day. And I saw also on the same uh, webpage, uh, Nat Geo actually, ha ha ha, Nat Geo fun, right? Uh, that she actually uh, can lay up to 2,000 eggs a day. So imagine how many little bees that she must um, create through her whole lifespan. I didn't do the math on this, actually, but it's pretty crazy how many different bees can come from just one queen bee. It's insane. Uh, and the rest of the population of the beehive and colony are actually female bees. So you got a little bit of a flip in gender roles here because the female bees do the majority of the roles around the hive. They are the uh, worker bees. And they, uh, their job is pretty self-explanatory, but they do all of the work around the hive. They will go and gather nectar and take care of the young and etc. 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 And the queen bee can actually determine the uh, gender of her eggs by uh, fertilizing or not fertilizing them with sperm. The female bees, the worker bees, are actually fertilized eggs, and the male bees are not. And when the queen bee lays eggs 
for new bees, these go in the holes of the hive. So that's where the little bees develop. It's so adorable. Anyways, it takes about three weeks for a worker bee to mature. Once they uh, crawl or hatch or whatever emerge from their uh, hive egg cell chamber thing, uh, they will spend about uh, three days cleaning out the various hive chambers in the whole colony. And this is to make room for more eggs when the queen decides to lay more eggs so that there will be more room for little baby bees. After this, uh, the worker bees will progress to the next stage of their uh, lives where they will care for the young. And they actually feed baby bees a substance called royal jelly, <laughs> which is like, imagine if it's like, royal grape jelly. It's it's not grape jelly, but it's called royal jelly. It's just a funny name. And this is a uh, liquid substance that contains a mixture of fats, vitamins, carbohydrates, and different sugars that developing bees need to uh, grow and become strong. And this is their food source, basically. And they will feed this to the growing, uh, developing bees. Uh, after a few days of caring for young, these worker bees will progress to the third stage in their lives where they will build uh, more walls in the hive. And this lasts for about a week. And uh, yeah, they, they, they go to the, the, the edges of the hive and they will make it bigger so that more bees can live in there. And it's, it's great. It's great. And the final stage of the lives in worker bees is that they will go out and uh, forage for uh, nectar. And they will bring this nectar and sometimes pollen, I guess, back to the hive to use it to make honey. And it's interesting because it's only older bees that will do this uh, foraging for nectar role. And this is because... Uh, the population in the bee colony stays maintained this way. Because think about it, if you sent out all of your young bees or your young workers and they got injured or they were killed by predators or something, you would have a very much smaller bee population. And you would lose all of your young workers, and that's just really bad for population maintenance. So this is why older bees are sent out. <laughs> they're basically casting out their elderly and they're just like, hey, here, you can go do this fun job where you go and get nectar and you have like a 50% chance of dying. I, I don't know what it actually is, but it, it's in a way, uh, it's very interesting. But in this way, bee colonies are able to maintain their populations so that they stay strong. And bees actually will work until they die. So they develop, they come out of their hive, and then they work on these four main jobs of cleaning chambers, caring for young, building the hive, and looking for nectar. And that's all they do. Once they do that, and they get tired of it, or, or something happens to them, they, they will die. And, and that is all. It It's a little morbid. I, I, I was reading up on this, and for some reason, I thought, like, oh, bees have, like, you know, like, maybe a little bit of leisure time, and they can go and, like, sleep and, like, 
rests on the flowers and nope, they just they just work until they die. It's 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 very interesting. It, it's a very efficient process, but it's also I, I I kind of feel bad for the little buddies. They're the little bees. They're they're so cute. I just I feel a little bad for them, but that's okay. That's their life, am I right? Anyways, the study that was done at Imperial College London uh, found that commonly used pesticides that are used on different plants affect bees' brains when they are developing in their larval stage. And for those of you who don't entirely know what pesticides are, pesticides are chemicals that are sprayed onto crops and various plants that we use uh, to, to eat and for food and things, they are used to uh, kill off any insects that might try to eat the plants or damage them so they're not able to grow. And bees are not immune to this because they go out to flowers and other uh, flowering plants to gather nectar. So they're not immune to the effects of pesticides. And uh, the main studies that have, that have been done about the effects of pesticides have, on bees have mainly been on adult bees who are already foraging and gathering nectar. There haven't really been any studies done on developing bees. So that's why this study uh, that ICL did was really interesting, is because they studied... Uh, Bees who were still developing and in their larval stage, they were studying them and the effect of pesticides on them. Because it turns out that the researchers found that the nectar and other uh, food sources that the worker bees were bringing back to the colony were actually contaminated. So when the workers were feeding these young developing bees their uh, their royal jelly and any other food that they might eat, it turns out that this this food source could be contaminated because of pesticides. And using uh, a micro uh, CT or a, a micro uh, CAT scan, the researchers were able to measure the effects of this. And specifically, they looked at the brains of these young bees. So they studied their their brains to see what exactly the effects of the pesticides were. And they found that pesticides actually uh, affected the work quality of these bees and how well they were able to learn things. Because uh, they found that there's this area in the bees' brains called the mushroom area, <laughs> it's shaped like a mushroom. That's that's really funny. And this part of the brain is actually involved in the learning processes that bees use. And the researchers found that the, that the damage from pesticides actually seems irreversible. So it's it's kind of scary. You've got these little cute uh, kind of cute developing bees, and and they're given this contaminated food, and they. They, they, they come out as adults and they, they're already racked with learning disabilities. It's, it's so sad. I, I feel bad for them. They're the cute little bees and they're having their little learning disabilities. It's very sad. 
Uh, but the the researchers tested this by giving uh, larval bees their food with the pesticides. They had a group where they had no pesticides, and they had a group with they tested it with pesticides that were only adults. And uh, the scientists used uh, they actually use one of the most uh, commonly used pesticides in the world, and it is called a neo. Uh, it's called a neonicotinoid, and uh, as I said, this is uh, one of the most commonly used pesticides in the world. Uh, it has actually been uh, restricted uh, of use in the U in the EU, the European Union. They have banned three types of these neonicotinoids. This was in 2018. And Canada is also working on banning these neonicotinoids. But I'm not sure if they have actually done that yet or not. I haven't I haven't I haven't seen anything yet. But a lot of the majority of other countries around the world actually still use these neonicotinoids. So it's really interesting that it affects these baby bees so much. And another thing I found when I was doing some research about this is that neonicotinoids also affect the fertility of the male drone bees. And so it's not just the developing bees, it's also the males. It's, it's crazy. And it turns out that uh, pesticides actually affect the drone bees by... Um, having them produce less uh, live sperm. So when you're uh, fertilizing an egg, you, you, know, you know you you need live sperm because if all your sperm is dead, then you're not going to get, you're, you're not going to get more baby bees or anything. They're all just, they're all just going to be, they're, they're, they're not going to get fertilized at all. So, and for uh, neonicotinoids specifically, the uh, scientists found that uh, drone bees if they're exposed to this pesticide, will produce about uh, 39% less live sperm. So this is less live sperm that the queen bee gets is able to use to make more uh, worker bees. So this is a problem because it can throw off the balance of population in the bee colony and it can... Uh, make the colony just weaker in, in general, because you have less workers to tend to the needs of the colony. Also, uh, some other effects from uh, dead sperm from pesticides are that uh, this can affect the genetic diversity of the bee colonies, because you'll have less genetically diverse individuals due to less variation in sperm, this can lead to some issues in, uh, in um, the health of the whole colony in and of itself because some bees can be more susceptible to different diseases due to their genetics. And while countries are switching off of these uh, neonicotinoids, the uh, other alternatives are actually uh, worse in terms of promoting bee uh, drone bee fertility rates. So as of right now, there is not a clear solution that also protects 
the fertility and the brain development of bees, but hopefully in a lab somewhere in the world, there is some progress going on to help protect bees and their health. Anyways, on to my uh, next topic that I would like to talk with you guys about. And to just give you a little taste of what it's about before I go into some background information, this next article and research done is about um, using a patient's own cells and stem cells to grow new intestines. So before I go into the research, I would like to just give a bit of a background about the various things that relate to this article. So, if you are someone who has uh, severe problems with your intestines and you're not able to eat uh, food properly, like you can't chew and swallow and digest and things like that, you will most likely end up in a hospital. And when you're in the hospital, doctors use two uh, main types of methods to uh give your body enough nutrients and uh, energy so that you are able to still, uh, your body is still able to function and you're still able to survive and everything, even if you have an issue with your uh, digestive system. <clears throat> so these two methods are uh, quite similar, but there's a few differences between them. The first method that I'm going to uh, talk about is called enteral feeding. And the next method is called uh, total parenteral nutrition. So firstly, enteral feeding is also known as tube feeding. This involves the use of a tube, uh, pretty self-explanatory here, to deliver nutrients to your body. And this is used, this process is used if you have a bowel blockage, if you have severe uh, diarrhea, um, or if you're really sick. And this is also used when someone has partial functioning of their intestines. Uh, it would bother me so much to have an, an issue with my intestines because I, I love food, you know? I, I, really love, uh, I really love Reese's. So for those of you who haven't tried a Reese's, some good old American candy for you. It's really good. Uh, chocolate and peanut butter. And I also love just taking a chocolate bar and dipping it into peanut butter. That's even better. That That's what I call homemade Reese's. They are very good. And I would, I would struggle so hard having a problem with my digestive tract. That would just drive me up a wall. And, oh, another thing before I go back to talking about, uh, enteral feeding. I want to give a really quick shout out to my friend Olivia. Uh, she's a really great person, loves to run. She actually is on the rowing team. Uh, she's back in the States, so no, you guys aren't going to meet her. Such a bummer. I mean, unless you want to come to the States, but that, that's, a, that's a hike. Um, but yeah, hi, Olivia. Miss you tons. And yeah, okay, back to the show. Anyways... There are three uh, main, uh, or three, four main types of tubes that doctors will use uh, 
to deliver your food and nutrients when using enteral feeding. Firstly, it are tubes uh, that enter through your nose or mouth. These are called uh, either nasogastric or orogastric tubes. And uh, I'm sure you, you might have seen some of these somewhere. I, I know I've seen some on uh, Grey's Anatomy, actually. <laughs> Grey's Anatomy is a great show, by the way. But uh, these are one type of tubes that doctors will use. Uh, another type are called um, gastronomy tubes. These are also called G-tubes, and they are inserted into the stomach. So what's different about these compared to uh, nasogastric and orogastric tubes is that these uh, types of tubes, along with the second other type of tubes that I haven't gotten to yet, are actually inserted directly into your body. So... They, they might have showed this on Grey's Anatomy or, or something, or maybe you've seen it on like a, another medical show or actually seen it on someone in the hospital, but they will actually insert tube into your body physically. And there's normally like a, a cover that will cover the skin and it'll go over the tube too, but it, it's very different in terms of use compared to uh, naso and orogastric tubes. The final type of tube that's used during enteral feeding is called the uh, jejunostromy tube, or the J-tube. This tube is inserted a little lower, and it's inserted into your uh, small intestine. So there's basically, I guess, four main areas of where enteral feeding tubes can be inserted. The food that is used actually for this is similar in texture to uh, a milkshake. So imagine you just they take a like a like a chocolate milkshake and they you dump it down a tube and that that's basically that's basically all it is. It's a it's a mixture of um, proteins and carbs and all the different nutrients that you need in a day to day basis to uh, for your body to function successfully and you stay alive pretty much. Now, another method that doctors will use if you have uh, damage to your digestive tract is called uh, total parenteral nutrition, or TPN. This is the last case scenario in terms of uh, feeding for uh, people with um, digestive and intestinal damage and issues. This is because this is a fully liquid solution, and it is actually clear, like an IV fluid. And this fluid enters your body very directly. It, it actually enters into your bloodstream. And this is because uh, TPN is actually, um, it, it enters your body through your blood, and that's because for this to work and for the solution to enter your body, doctors will give you what's called an IV. And an IV, if you don't know, is, uh, I think it stands for like intra intravenous or whatever. Med students correct me. <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, it is a, a needle that 
goes into your arm, that goes into one of your uh, blood vessels. So the solution goes directly into your bloodstream. And this needle is hooked up to a thin, hollow plastic tube that is then hooked up to a larger uh, plastic bag that holds the uh, solution that they put into your body. I think it's normally like saline or whatever, but that's an IV for you. So total parenteral nutrition is basically uh, that you are uh, technically, quote unquote, eating through an IV tube. So it's, it's very, it's very different uh, compared to enteral feeding. And this process, this TPN process is used if your digestive system is severely limited or damaged. An example of when your uh, digestive system can be really damaged is something called uh, short gut syndrome. This is when your small intestine is very limited and sometimes even parts of it may have to be removed in surgery. But the small intestine is a really important part of your uh, digestive tract. And this is because it absorbs the nutrients from your food directly. And there are some issues that have uh, come up with uh, the use of total parenteral nutrition. Namely, uh, there have been liver infections and there have been infections in the IV line or the area around the needle where the solution enters your bloodstream. So these are all very uh, troublesome. And this is why uh, doctors have been looking for other solutions to try and uh, give a simpler solution than having to have their patients resort to these methods of care while they are trying to um, just get better and get, get fixed. And uh, so before I talk about the article, I just want to give a, another little quick intro slash explanation about uh, something called stem cells. And for those of you who haven't heard or entirely know about what stem cells are, uh, they are specific cells uh, in your body that haven't, um, the term's called, they haven't uh, differentiated. That's, that's the word for it, differentiated. And uh, by differentiated, I mean these are cells that have not uh, developed into specific cells yet. So they're just, they're basically blank slates. They haven't been told genetically what their purpose is in the body because, uh, for instance, the human body, you've got dozens, maybe hundreds, I'm not sure, but you have tons of different cells that have different roles within your body. Let's take your muscle cells, for instance. They have a completely different shape and they have a function that's very different compared to, uh, say, your bone cells or the neurons in your nervous system. And these stem cells are pretty much the precursor cells to all of these different cell types in your body. So they're like phase one of cells in your body. It's pretty cool. And 
they have played a really important role in the research that has been done uh, today. And actually, uh, they've played a really important role in the research that uh, Imperial College London has been doing. They have been uh, <clears throat> trying to figure out a solution for children who have intestinal failure because having a kid with intestinal failure, I, I, it's, it's, I, I don't have the proper words for it, but good job to all of those kids who are, who are handling it. You guys are great. Uh, anyways, the researchers that were involved in this specific study, along with ICL, were the, uh, were researchers in the Francis Crick Institute and the Great Ormond Street Hospital. And actually, uh, so wait, before, okay, before I go on to the study, I just want to lay a, a little bit of a background for anyone who is struggling with, um, intestinal failure like these kids. So say you're, you're a kid and you have a failing uh, intestine, whether it be your large intestine, your small intestine, either one of those. If this is the case, you can sometimes be on the list, no, you will be on the list for an organ transplant. And organ transplants are actually limited because there's only, there are only really certain numbers of people who are able to donate. And this is because when you do a transplant of any of your intestines, uh, you basically have to be uh, a dying donor because this isn't a transplant you can do and still survive from it. There are types of organ transplants you can do and still live afterwards. Uh, the two are uh, a kidney transplant and liver transplant. The kidney transplant works where they take one of your kidneys and you're left with one kidney and the body can still function with one kidney. And how a liver transplant works is they'll take part of your liver and your liver is actually an organ that can regrow itself. So they'll take part of your liver and then three, four months later, your liver will have healed and regrown and then your body is able to function normally again. But this isn't the case with intestinal uh, organ transplants. So it's very different. And there are also uh, issues associated with organ transplants. Uh, this is namely because an organ transplant is uh, a troublesome thing for your body. The organ comes from an entirely different person. And even though they are quite similar to you in blood type and uh, other things, as doctors run lots of tests on this, your own cells are still on edge about receiving a new organ. They will actually sometimes attack the other cells of the transplant organ. And this is why people who have received organs through an organ transplant will uh, need to take immunosuppressant drugs for their whole lives. This is so that their immune system is suppressed enough so that their own cells do not attack the transplant and they are able to live their lives normally.
But since people take immunosuppressants for stuff like this, they are more at risk for catching a disease or <clears throat> uh, COVID-19, I guess, as well. And the study that was done by ICL is was actually a uh, proof of concept study, which is where they they um, took this experimental idea and they tested it out and gathered real data from it. They focused on growing the intestines and specifically the most important part of intestines, which is the area in the intestines that absorbs the nutrients for your body. And this is benef beneficial for children and anyone else who has had uh, intestinal issues or problems because they will not have to stay on enteral or potentially total parenteral nutrition. They can, they will be able to come back and live their lives normally again. And how the scientists did this is they use uh, so-called mini-guts. These are also known as organoids, so as you can kind of guess, they are small versions of organs. And uh, how this worked is that the researchers used cells from the intestines of patients and they made a kind of scaffolding out of these tissues. They then took uh, stem cells and placed these, I think, on, on top of the uh, own patient's scaffolding cells, and these were then grown on the scaffolding. For instance, they had some cells from a patient, and they were able to grow uh, about 10 million cells over the course of a month. So it was actually a quite a successful experiment. And when they transferred the tissues uh, into mice, the, uh, they were able to actually successfully break, uh, they were able to uh, absorb nutrients from food. So it was a very positive first step in the development of these organoids. The next steps that the researchers were focusing on were to be able to apply this to growing the remainder of uh, the, um, the intestines. So the blood vessels and muscles and all of those other important organs or parts of the intestines that are used uh, every day by people. So this would be a more... Uh, safer way to treat uh, intestinal issues. And this research that was done by uh, these scientists at ICL, is it actually falls under a field uh, called regenerative medicine, where uh, it's kind of a new field, probably popped up in the last, the last 20 years. So this, this, this century, I guess maybe the maybe the 90s, I don't know something, and uh, it's actually where researchers have been working on using a patient's own cells to help heal their body. So it's it's a really revolutionary new field, and this research is really important for the future for for medicine and for patients and 
just overall developments in the field of biology technology. It's it's amazing. It's it's amazing. And if any of you have ever gotten in on any of this at all, I would love if you could talk with me about it. I could even make that a subject of one of my shows. You could be published on one of my shows. I would I would love to have your input on anything, any kind of research you're able to do. I would love to hear about it. Anyways, I'm on to my next article, which is about sharks. So, you know, like jaws and all that stuff. Except it's not about Jaws. That that'd be more of like a film history show, and I'm not I'm not doing a film history show. Uh, anyways, just a little brief before I give a bit of background. This next article is about a f- new fossil that was discovered, uh, and it suggests a new way that sharks might have potentially evolved. Okay, now a little bit of background. Sharks are actually fish. Now, I kind of thought for a while when I was younger that sharks were like their own thing. And like, so you had like fish and you had whales and you had sea turtles and then sharks were their own thing. But no, they're actually fish. It's pretty crazy. They're, it, it still kind of shocks me that they're fish. It's crazy. And in terms of size, uh, sharks can vary from about, uh, 20 to 30 centimeters to almost 15 meters. So that's about a foot to like 60 feet. So they can be get, they can get pretty large. <clears throat> Same in terms of weight. Sharks uh, weight can range from 30 grams to 180,000 kilograms. So thousands of pounds. It's crazy. And the largest shark in the world is the whale shark. And since sharks are also fish, this makes the whale shark the largest fish in the world. It's almost uh, 15 meters, or it's almost 60 feet long. And for those of you who don't know what it looks like, it's this massive shark. And it actually doesn't eat fish. It eats, I think it eats krill, or sh- krill, krill. I think it eats, it eats, it eats krill or it eats plankton, and it has a, it has, it's brown and it has these cute little white spots, and these cute little beady eyes and its giant mouth. I would love to see one in person. I really would. So if any of you have ever seen a whale shark, I would love to hear about it. I would. Oh, and if any of you have ever seen a baby whale shark, I would love to hear about that as well. I I need. I, I haven't, I don't know what they look like. I'm sure they're probably just really adorable and small. I just, I would love to see one of those in real life. That would be the best. And the smallest shark in the world, actually, is called a dwarf lantern shark. So it's about a foot long. So it's it's very different in size compared to the, um, the whale shark. It's pretty crazy. And again, if you've also seen one of those before, I would love to hear about that as well. Sharks have existed for about 400 million years, actually, and there are around 500 different species of sharks. 
and that that's a lot. They there there are lots and lots of sharks. I I didn't know there were that many types of sharks. I thought maybe at most there were a hundred types of sharks, but there's almost five hundred. That it's pretty crazy. And what's also interesting is that sh- sharks' skeletons are made of cartilage. And for those of you who don't know who car- what cartilage is, it makes up your ears and your nose. So that's why if you ever look at a skeleton, you'll never see a person's nose or their ears because of the cartilage. And it might not fossilize correctly. I'm not sure. Uh, <clears throat> sharks uh, also have uh, seven gills. So gills work uh, when the sharks swim through the water and then the gills will filter out the oxygen from the water. And they have seven of these on each side of them. And scientists are actually still working on studying to observe the behavior and know more about the behavior of sharks because they have been a little understudied uh, because only a few species have been studied by scientists, and there are, as we know, about 500 species of sharks. So that's a lot of potential scientific data. The oldest shark in the world, I think, or it's a pretty old shark in general, it is called the Greenland shark, and it is actually 272 years old. So that shark has been around since the 1700s. So that is a long time. It's a very long time. And I wonder if he, I wonder if that shark is just hanging out because it's called the Greenland shark. I wonder if he's hanging out in Greenland and just swimming around in the cold water and he's just chilling out because he's almost 300 years old. It's pretty crazy. I mean, I didn't know sharks could live to be almost 300 years old. I, think that's just insane. And even though I'm a little freaked out of sharks, and I know a lot of people are, you only have about a 1 in 11.5 million chance of being bitten. So that's pretty good. And just don't go around in a seal costume swimming in the ocean, because sharks uh, will quite often hunt seals. So unless you want to get bit by a shark, just be careful when you're swimming around. Sharks, if you didn't already guess, can fossilize. And this is in part because uh, as sharks age, calcium is added to their cartilage. So if you take a look at a shark skeleton, you'll see probably uh, the calcium that has been added on. Also, their teeth will show up in the fossil record. So you might have found some along the beach. And uh, there's also the giant teeth of, I think it's called the Megalodon. And I know I saw one in an aquarium once and it was massive. It was utterly massive. If you haven't seen one of those skeletons, please go. They're really cool. They make for really cool pictures. And their teeth are like as big as your hand. It's, It's insane. But, of course, those sharks are extinct now. That would have been pretty scary if they still existed, I guess. Uh, also, interestingly, the age of a shark is actually determined by the number of vertebrae that they have. And vertebrae are 
would make up your spine. So they're the little interlocking things that make up your spine. So if you wanted to age a shark or figure out the age of a shark, you would just count the amount of vertebrae that it has. And I think that's pretty cool. I mean, I had no idea how to tell how old a shark was, but now I do. And I guess now you do too. It's pretty cool. Anyways, on to the really cool study. So uh, researchers discovered uh, a 410 million year old fossil in a uh, district in Mongolia called Turgan. And this is near the Russian border. border. And uh, we had researchers from Imperial College London and uh, Mongolia. And this fossil was the head of an armored fish. And it is actually the ancestor of sharks. But it is also one of the ancestors of bony fishes. So this is why it was of particular interest to researchers. Because they're like, oh, we found this really cool, really old fish fossil. They actually published the study, this study, uh, back on September 7th. So the first day of Freshers Week. So that's a pretty cool thing, right? That happened during Freshers Week, besides all of our online events. So... I, I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, that's only just a little over a month ago. That's pretty crazy. And uh, actually, you know, ooh, another interesting thing. Cartilage actually only weighs about half as much as bone. Or its density is half as much as bone. So it's, it's pretty crazy because you got quite a uh, weight difference with cartilage compared to bone. And... Uh, as I already mentioned, this armored fish fossil that the scientists found uh, is an ancestor of both sharks and uh, bony fish. And it was interesting because it challenged the evolutionary idea of how sharks evolved. Because it's been thought that sharks... Uh, and cartilage animals split off in the evolutionary tree, and sharks evolved separately to develop their full cartilage skeletons. But this fish skeleton, that is a shark ancestor, has a bony skull, which poses the question of, whoa, these sharks, they have all cartilage now, but their ancestor had bone, which was really interesting. And how the researchers were able to tell this is they looked at, they looked for a certain uh, kind of bone in the fish skeleton. And this is called uh, endochondrial bone. And this bone is what develops after your body forms cartilage. And an example is actually us. So when you're born, and when any baby is born, you are born with cartilage. And your bones develop, but you first start off with cartilage. And this development from cartilage to bone 
is what's called uh, endochondrial bone. So this was a very interesting find that researchers discovered about this specific fish because this fish had bone in its head, this endochondrial bone. So it was very interesting in terms of now questions are uh, questions are arising of scientists who are wondering, did sharks have bony skeletons before they had cartilage ones? And more research is going on in this field, but it is a really interesting question and one that I never thought of before because, frankly, I always thought that shark skeletons were made of bones. But then to come and learn and hear that they're not is something that has really been a quite shocking for me, frankly. And, I mean, I hope it's as uh, shocking to you as well. I, I had no idea, frankly. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, another thing that I found also was really interesting is that sharks were one of the first global fish species. So imagine if, you know, like they invented a time machine and you were able to go back in time to 400, 380 million years ago and, and say you, you showed up on uh, where, um, wherever Scotland was 400 million years ago and, and you, you showed up on this island and you were like, oh, I'm going to go swimming. You go swimming and you will find the sharks in the water everywhere. It, I just think that's pretty crazy. Oh, actually, oh, another slight tangent. But in the similar field of fossils is, uh, for those of you who do not know already, there there is about half hour here from St. Andrews, actually, a place called the Rock and Spindle. And if you want to see some cool remnants of a volcano, you can go there and look at them. And there are also these imprints of uh, old tree fossils. So another cool thing, if you want to go look at that as well, really cool, really, really cool. I had no idea they were there, frankly. I, I just, I thought it was super cool. I mean, of course, we don't have shark fossils here in St. Andrews, but, I mean, what if we did? That would be very cool, and also, I would be a little afraid. <laughs> I'm also kind of happy that there's no sharks here, too, because they they, they, they scare me a little bit. I actually, uh, when I was about 11 or 12, my parents took me and my sister to uh, the Galapagos Islands, which is off the coast of Ecuador. So if you guys have never been, it's it's very it's very cool. Uh, but we were we were snorkeling and we ran into this this these black tipped sharks and and they just freaked me out so badly. Uh, I mean they just they 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 scared me so much. Uh, but hey, if any of you guys have any interesting stories about your shark encounters, go ahead and tell me. I. I would love to hear about it. Anyways, uh, that's all I have for today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed learning about bees and sharks and tiny organs that scientists are growing because I think it's all pretty cool. You guys must think it's pretty cool. Am I right? 
because it is. It's really cool. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. I'm excited to come back next week and talk with you more about some amazing findings in biology. And this is Julia signing off until next week's edition of The Living World.